Well, let's just do this. Let's Maybe just turn yours down a little. How about we just hang? All right. Okay, so this is another short intro. Yeah, it is. But I'll tell you what, it sure is getting cold out there, huh? Oh, Have you felt that? Winter? Yeah, here in Anchorage. Is it coming? I think so. Yeah, I think so too. You know, my uh, I got my heater went out in my van, so I'm, I'm feeling it a little that bit That doesn't more. surprise me. I know. So I'm not sure how I'm going to go about fixing that, but uh, I'm probably going to have to rip the dash out and check out some electronics or something. Why don't you just get a space heater? Well, how do you... In a generator? Yeah. <laughs> How do you run the space heater in your van? <laughs> I don't know. I think you could figure it out. Yeah, the, those things run on like a lot of watts, so you'd have to have a pretty uh, high, high-charged high inverter off your battery, I think. My brother Derek had this car when he was in high school, and it was a Subaru with no gas tank on it. And so my what? dad put this, this fuel pump, this like hand hand pump gasoline can in the middle console. And so every time that Derek drove, he'd have to pump it in order to feed gas to the fuel line, right? Yeah. And so he's in his German class, and he said the principal runs in, slams the door open, and said, you know, whose car is that? Is it, you know, I need Derek Liska to move his, move his you know, car or whatever, because they thought it was a bomb, because he'd parked right outside of service high. Yeah. And they just saw the gizmos or whatever? Exactly. Yeah. So at least your car is not that car. Yeah, that's true, man. I mean, and there's always jackets, right? I can just wear a jacket. You're wearing a jacket right now. It's a half puff, isn't it? Yeah, it's a half puff. <laughs> I crossed over about two years ago. <laughs> Fratagonia? Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to this uh, intro here. Uh, oh, uh, Patreon. Yeah. So to everyone out there listening who might not know, there is a Patreon app you can download and it's pretty sick. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of like another social media thing, but it's like, you know, it's just about the content we create, some of the behind the scenes thing. Um, we had one of our patrons kind of post a long message on there the other day, right? Yeah, exactly. Was that Jerry Lee Sadler? Yeah, Jerry Lee Sadler. Yeah, yeah. Shout out, bud. Yeah, yeah, man. We're, we, let's let's get some cool discussion going on that. That was pretty That was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so we, yeah. So we have uh, our company man that we always have to shout out, Trina Duber. Trina! Whoop, whoop. Yeah, Trina, thanks for uh, helping us push this crude mission forward. You're helping us um, tell the Alaskan story, so thank you. Yeah, it, it's important. You know, maybe maybe I'll be able to get that heater fixed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then also, you know, we're on iTunes. We're on all the places. If you, if you can, guys. Spotify. Uh, yep, drop us a review on uh, iTunes. You know, that, that helps us in the rankings. Absolutely. All right, so... This week, we talked to Alex James. Alexan- Dr. Alexander James, an he, economist. He's an economist who studies resource economies, and he teaches at UAA. That's right, yeah. And so um, what was really cool about him was that he's only lived here in Alaska, and so I remember talking to him and asking him, you know, do you feel like an Alaskan? Because he just moved here pretty much. Yeah, four years ago. Okay, well, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, he's still pretty... Pretty green then? He, he's pretty green. and I, I, Yeah. And so that was cool. And then he kind of asked us, you know, how to, do you guys feel like you're Alaskan just because you grew up here? And I think what you say? Like, yeah, you just you just have that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely the, uh, I don't even know how to define it. It's just, you know, you just know it when you feel it. Yeah. I, I'm not even sure I know what makes somebody fully Alaskan, you know, because people come here and they move all the time and they, they claim it. You know- I think one way that I've always understood being Alaskan is that if something pivotal 
happens in your life for better or for worse and you have to go home and when you have to go home to alaska that's when alaska is home so if there if there is a death in your family or if there is a a birthday celebration or something else and you're like you know what i gotta go back to be with my family for this event are you, are you talking about when my stand-up comedy career didn't happen and i had to come <laughs> back here did is that when i became alaskan you know <laughs> i was actually talking to alcoda and yeah. his girlfriend yeah me and and my wife carrie were uh we're, we're visiting with them this weekend and we were talking about comedian bodies and how comedians who are overweight and get skinny are are seen as less funny so the comedian body is like the chris farley body yeah does that happen well i don't know should we try it out what get fat become comedians and lose weight and see if we can still be comedians yeah that that sounds like the ultimate social experiment seriously fuck this podcast shit Let's head, let's head to Pizza Hut right now. <laughs> you and pizza, dude. I love Pizza Hut and pizza. How many pizzas do you think you eat a week? Oh, I would say on average two. Two pizzas a week for how many years? Oh, I don't know. That's actually pretty hard for me to... I can't, I can't give you those numbers right now. I'd really have to think, and it, it changes. It comes in waves sometimes, but... You know who could probably help us out with this? The Economist? The Economist. Yeah. Alex James. So that's cool. So he, the resource curse... The resource curse. Yeah, your resource is pizza. <laughs> is it a curse or is it not? <laughs> exactly. All right, so what would that mean? Like if, if my if, if pizza was my resource curse, what would that mean? Well, we'd have to look at the uh, long-term versus short-term goals, right? Yeah, the long-term versus short-term effects. Long, yeah, long-term goals is you got the comedian body. I got the comedian body. <laughs> short-term goals is you're I full. Felt, I felt sick. Yeah, well, you felt sick or <laughs> you know, know you feel full. Anyway, this was a great conversation because he moved here to kind of look at, you know, um, our dependency on oil and the fact that we're dependent on this single resource and kind of what are the other effects on our economy? Any, you know, whether it's political corruption, whether it's the fact that, you know, we we stifle manufacturing because they don't want to move into Alaska because we have such a volatile economy with booms and busts. You know, and so we kind of look at all these things and it's pretty interesting. I, uh, I definitely learned a lot. You know, I know there's one part in there where I screwed up and I said national life expectancy is 88 and 76 or oh, 88 and Yeah, 86. I remember when you busted that out. I was all yeah. impressed. Yeah, I was kind of impressed too. And then I looked it up earlier today and it's 78 and 76, I believe. Oh, so it's in the 70s? It's in the 70s. Okay. I don't know why I thought 80s. Maybe you just... You're, my, just, you're looking forward to my, 80s. My grandma just uh, turned 80 yesterday, so shout out to her. Yeah, shout out to your grandma yeah, for she's sure. In Hell yeah. Tight. Um, all right, cool. Well, yeah, I hope you guys uh, enjoy this. Make sure to head over to patreon.com backslash crude magazine. Check it out. Right on. Here's Alex. Alex. Tight. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude Conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Okay, so we were just talking, Alex, about your assimilation (laughs) into the Alaskan community, and you brought up Ship Creek. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, 
I've lived up here for four years, and it's been an awesome time. It's been great. Um, especially, I think, coming from California. This juxtaposi- juxtaposition between California and Alaska, in a lot of ways, they're similar, especially Northern California in here. In a lot of ways, they're very different, right? So the fact that you can go to downtown Anchorage on your lunch break and fish for king salmon and actually catch king salmon is unreal, right? Have you ever done that? I ha- oh, yeah. Yeah, I've spent... Uh, an embarrassing amount of time down at Ship Creek, especially embarrassing given the number that I've actually caught. Uh, but I've done last summer. I did pretty well. This summer was pretty pretty bad. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I heard I heard the the salmon runs weren't um, optimal. No, they weren't. Um, so I, I don't take it personally that I didn't catch a fish this summer. But y- you know, it's kind of funny. I had a conversation earlier today with a friend of mine that lives in Boston. Uh-huh. And he talked about moving there and like the conveniences of living in an urban environment and how he can uh, go to a Boston's Red Sox game and walk home afterwards. And it's funny to hear you say that because like our version of that is on your lunch break, you can go and catch a king salmon. Yeah. You know, that, I, I think that's pretty cool. I think it's cool too. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so Alex, one of the themes of this podcast that, that we've kind of, that we've been noticing is we're trying to understand what makes someone Alaskan. And you said that you just moved here. Mm-hmm. When did you move here? Um, summer of 2000, uh, summer 2014. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in your experience, do you, do you feel like you're an Alaskan? Uh, that's a good question. No, I guess I, I probably don't. Why? Why is that? Um, I've spent limited amount of time outside of the Anchorage area. Um, cause there's so much to do down here, right? I've been to the Kenai Peninsula a hundred times now and I still want to go back. So that's part of it. I'm just pretty ignorant about a lot of the geography, ignorant about a lot of the, the people, the places, the culture, the history. I just actually don't know a lot about the state. Um, so that's part of it. And then I think that I have so many connections and, um, you know, relationships with people outside of the state. I'm kind of, my mind is often outside not inside. Um, and I think in part because of that, you know, when I moved up here, it was like, well, you know, give it a year, two years, maybe three years, um, probably leave after that just cause it's Alaska. And that seems like kind of a wild place to live. And it, and it's super far away from family that, that my wife and I are both close with. Um, but we got up here and it was like, Oh my God, this place is amazing. I fell in love with it. So we're still here. Um, but I think there is still an attitude of like, well, we don't know how long we're going to be here. Maybe another two years, maybe another five, maybe another 10, maybe another 30 years, but it does still, I, I guess I feel a bit transitory still. So it's I, I still an adventure. You're still kind of in vacation mode, still feeling it out. Um, and yeah, I don't feel like I've fully committed and just decided to spend the rest of my life here. So that's probably why I don't feel like like an Alaskan. So what brought you up here in the first place? So um, you want the, the long version or the short version? The podcast version. The, the, the long podcast, detailed <laughs> podcast version. So, so it, it started with uh, in, when I was an undergrad. And um, it actually started with a professor of mine named Pete Chernos. And Pete uh, taught my environmental and natural resource economics class. And he, uh, he knew that I had tr- done some traveling in Central America. And so he, um, he wanted to go down there for his honeymoon. And so he asked me where he should go. And I said, uh, well, you know, you should go to 
you know, this place and this place. And actually, I'm going to be down there this summer. Long story a little bit shorter is I'm down in Costa Rica and I run into him on the beach and I ended up crashing his honeymoon for two weeks. And while I was crashing his honeymoon, he tells me about, you know, this perplexing idea that um, that natural resources can can actually harm economic development. And so he was pointing out some observations he had made down in Latin America. So uh, I get really interested in this stuff. I went to the University of Wyoming for graduate school because I wanted to study resource-rich economies and, and, and environmental economics. I graduated from Wyoming in 2012 and was given the opportunity to join uh, the Center for the Analysis of Resource-Rich Economies at the University of Oxford. So I did a two-year fellowship over there. Studying research-rich economies, two years later, applied for, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 jobs, something like that. And um, and as I mentioned to you guys earlier, I had an option between moving back to California for a great job there or moving up here for a job at, at UAA. And um, I talked to my, my girlfriend at the time, said, what do you want to do? And we both decided that Alaska seemed like a good adventure and beyond, you know, the appeal of it, being being an adventure and something new, was this, you know, personally, professionally, for me, it was also this opportunity to live in a resource-rich economy and actually experience the challenges that the people face on a day-to-day basis. And so I was hired in the spring of 2014, moved up here in the summer of 2014. Oil prices crashed November of 2014. Hired by who? UAA. UAA, okay. Oil prices crashed in, in November 2014, right after I got here. And then it was instantly, um, you know, crisis mode. Yeah, so perfect. So why don't you let everyone know kind of uh, where your studies focus and, and why uh, moving up here in 2014 and being able to see that firsthand, um, as bad as it is for us, seems to kind of work out for you. Um, what do you mean work out for me? Like your, your studies are basically like... Uh, different implications of resource economies, right? And, yeah. and where like Alaskans are just like, oil is good, you know, it gives us jobs. You look at it from a different perspective, right? Well, um, in some sense, it's a different perspective. I think we're, I'm, I'm thinking about the same questions that Alaskans are thinking about. I'm, I'm trying to answer them in a different way. And so I think one big difference is, is you know, and I, th- I think there's certain um, challenges associated with the fact that I'm new in terms of doing research in this place that I'm unfamiliar with. But there's also advantages associated with that, right? So I think part of um, what I've experienced up here recently um, has been that I think that there's just this idea that, especially for maybe people that live through the oil boom in the late 70s and early 80s, that they saw the amount of development that occurred pre-Prudhoe Bay to post-Prudhoe Bay. And they designate all of those gains to oil, right? And I don't have that experience. I wasn't, I wasn't raised by an Alaskan family that told me, you know, here's the value of oil. This is what oil did. And so I don't take that as given. Maybe I would take that as given if I was from Alaska. And I'd never ask that question. I would never wonder whether or not you can actually quantify the you know presumed benefits of of oil extraction but now my my frame of reference my perspective coming from Wyoming and and Oxford is you know there is 30 years of of literature you know 30 years of of economists and political scientists asking this question of what is the role 
of natural resource wealth on social and economic outcomes. So the, the, the academic world, the scientific world, does not take that for granted. And in fact, the evidence is mixed. Um, some people have actually decided that, no, there's, you know, natural resources are, are, are bad for economic growth and development. Uh, I'm more skeptical, actually, of that view. But I definitely think that there's room to ask that question and that more research needs to be done and that we should be doing that research. You know, so you recently examined whether the, the, shale, the shale oil boom in lower 48 caused crime rates to increase. I mean, what, what made you look into that? Uh, newspapers. And so it was kind of – it was – um, the, the middle of the shale boom, right? And, and I'm reading these articles about what the shale energy boom is doing to some of these local economies in terms of the social disorganization, the sudden increase in population, the massive amount of wealth that was being generated. At the same time, I'm, um, my girlfriend uh, at the time was living in Denver. So I'd fly back to Denver every you know eight weeks or something, sometimes just for the weekend, which was terrible. But um, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was a solid investment. We're married now. Um, nice, yeah. yes. <laughs> So, uh, but I go back to Denver and Weld County, just north of Denver, was was profoundly impacted by the the shale boom as well. And so I, you know, drive up there and and could see the 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 impact that the shale boom was having. And so I guess I am yeah, just reading newspapers. I have the shale boom on my mind, and and there are these reports of people being assaulted, some pretty terrible crimes being committed, um, but not a lot of of really rigorous tests of whether or not the shale boom actually was causing crime. You know, I think people have um, a tendency to say, you know, if they observe some change and some other variable changed right before it, they attribute everything to that first change, right? Kind of like how you were talking about uh, people that were, were born here attribute all of this success to oil. Right, right. Um, and they might be right, but but they might not be. And so that's where the rigorous, um, you know, academic research comes in. And, and so what were you able to find? So what we found with that paper was that the shale boom did cause crime to rise. Um, I think the, I haven't looked at this paper in a little while, but the results were particularly strong for uh, nonviolent crimes, um, simple assaults, theft, uh, uh, auto theft, larceny, things like this. The results for violent crime forcible rape, uh, robbery, uh, murder. The results for those crimes were not as significant, possibly because they just there was not a strong effect for those crimes, possibly, though, because there's just so few murders in sparsely populated counties where the shale boom occurred that if the, uh, you know, the murder rate goes from zero to one, it's hard to uh, you know, estimate the effect that the shale boom had on that. But yeah, so we, we found that, that it did, in fact, cause crimes to go up. There are more crimes being committed in these jail-rich counties because of because of the boom. We also looked at why that might be happening. Uh, so we didn't pin down the specific mechanism to, to the point where we could say, this is why the crime rates rose. But there's a bunch of different potential explanations, right? Uh, and we kind of go through a checklist. Like, here, you know, it's possible that because young men commit crimes at such a higher rate than other people, if these shale booms are suddenly inundated with young men, maybe that's why crime rates rose. So we look and see, were these places actually inundated with young men? And they actually were not. Um, when there's an energy boom, it does attract people to work in the energy sector. And oftentimes those are young men. But 
that economic shock ripples through the economy. And so it wasn't just the energy sector that was hiring more labor during the energy boom. More school teachers are needed, more doctors, more, um, you know, hairstylists and fast food workers. Yeah, hotels, right? To hotels, yeah. yeah. So, you, so it wasn't just young men moving to these areas. It was a wide, wide group of people. So we don't think it was that. Um, income inequality has been linked to both violent crimes and property crimes in, in previous literature. And we do document a significant increase in inequality that resulted from How, do, how does but, that work? Uh, so you mean, how does inequality lead to crime? How does um, shale oil boom lead to more inequality? We, we hypothesize that it was due to – so there's a couple of different sources of income that are generated by something like the, the shell boom. One is just wage income. There's more uh, higher wages, more people working, there's more money floating around. The other is uh, royalties. So there are reports you know, of people living in um, – you know, going back to newspaper stories, people living in, in trailers and in, in, in mobile home parks receiving checks for $10,000 a month from – royalty payments, right? And Because they're extracting the resources from their land or... That's right, yeah. Yep. So they're leasing out their land, collecting royalties, and the oil is unequally dispersed throughout the Mountain West and the West and the, and the South. Um, and so the income gains are also unequally distributed around the area. So there are people, some neighbors are earning, you know, $250,000 a year from royalties and their neighbors across the street are not earning anything. So it's a psychological effect into your society. Right. So why does that income inequality cause crime? Uh, so there's, it depends on if you're talking about violent crime or property crime, right? So if it's property crime, it's a bit more intuitive how the mechanism would work. If I live on the street that doesn't get any royalties and you do, and you just bought a Ferrari, I might come take that Ferrari, right? So, so th it's possible that income inequality had something to do with it. There's also social disorganization, just there's a bunch of people moving into the area, a bunch of people moving out, people don't know each other. So if I commit a crime now, it's, well, it was a white male with brown hair that committed the crime, not, oh, it was Professor James that committed the crime because nobody knows who I am. Right? Classic Professor James. Classic, classic <laughs> Professor James. So, so uh, because of that social disorganization, the probability of getting caught after committing a crime goes down. That should incentivize people to commit more crimes. Ideally, we could you know look at a, a registry of, of criminally prone individuals, right? So who's likely to commit a crime? And then we could observe whether or not these people are moving to these shale-rich counties. So, so you, you have a, um, an example of who has moved here, right? Like a, um, what would you call that? Like a sample. Yeah. So, but a sample that describes the criminality of the yeah, people. the demographics of criminality. Yeah, yeah. So are these people likely to commit crimes and then are they moving? And then we can say whether or not these show booms are actually causing people that live there to start committing crimes or whether there's the people moving into the area that are committing crimes. So that registry of, of criminally prone individuals doesn't exist. Right. So we can't we can't use that. Um, we what we ended up doing, the closest we could get to that is uh, to use data provided by the um, by Megan's Law. Right. So Megan's Law makes public a list of previously um, registered sexual offenders and Megan's Law, the data that's provided there, it tells us um, where a registered sex offender lives what their registering offense was, where they committed their registering offense, and when they committed it. Uh, but it's not a panel of data. We can't observe, you know, um, where sex offenders live over time. 
from their website, we can just get a snapshot. So in 2014, I got a snapshot for the state of North Dakota. So for that year, I had a list of 1,200 sex offenders and uh, registered sex offenders. And I actually went through and, and um, I had, the, the data was not super user friendly. So I had to read through, you know, why they were on that registry um, to get the data. So it's a bit time consuming and cumbersome, but. Uh, and probably a little disheartening about your fellow man. It actually was, it made me feel, uh, I, it was, a, it was, the surprising thing was the number of people that are on that registry for reasons that, you know, seemed, um, like peeing in public. Yeah. yeah that's what I was thinking about. Yeah. Peeing in public, um, two minors having intercourse with each other, um, Two adult siblings having intercourse with each other is apparently a crime. Now, that's, you know, unusual. Um, but Teach their own. Should you be, to, yeah, should you be <laughs> on, a, on a registry because of that? I, I would argue no. Um, and so it's actually, that was what was disheartening about it was seeing that the, the act, there was some truly heinous acts that were reflected in that, in that data. Um, but it was the minority yeah, from what I remember. Um, but so what we did find is that the number of people... Uh, we, we found significant evidence that, that the shale boom attracted registered sex offenders. Um, so we found that the counties that were producing shale oil had per capita twice as many registered sex offenders living in them than the North Dakota counties that were not producing shale oil. And that seems surprising at first, but you think about it, it's like, oh yeah, no, that makes perfect sense because the unemployment rate in North Dakota back in 2014 was something like two and a half percent. And nationally, it was more than twice that. And it turns out, so having a, a conviction on your record, even a nonviolent drug offense, makes you makes it significantly harder for you to find employment. So you have to go to a place where they need employees. Yeah, and it's yeah. especially hard if you're registered if you if, if you're uh, you know you have a, a sex offense on your on your record. There's, I guess, an unusual number of registered sex offenders that own their own companies because they can't find employment anywhere else. And so, yeah, they go where the unemployment rate's two and a half percent. So that doesn't mean that the reason that crime rates rose in those counties is because of the registered sex offenders that moved there. But I, I think we reported that statistic, A, because it's, it's interesting and important, but B, it does provide some evidence that there was this kind of, um, you know, heterogeneous labor migration. There was a certain type of people uh, to a certain type of person that was possibly moving to the, these boom towns. So in the same way that newspaper articles led you down kind of this rabbit hole of looking into the sh uh, shale oil and and the kind of the repercussions of it has has the newspaper articles in anchorage about the rising crime rate or at least you know um a an attention to the crime has, has that affected your decision to to look into anchorage in the same way um yeah it's crossed my mind i haven't done the analysis yet my impression from reading the newspapers is that uh, a lot of the crime has to do with the opioid academic, uh, epidemic. And then, uh, you know, apparently Alaska's in a recession. Uh, the unemployment rate is among the highest in the, in the U.S. right now. So what do you mean when you say apparently? I guess I, guess I said that because um, 
I was anticipating there to be a, a larger negative shock to the Alaskan economy, given the, the sudden and, and significant drop in oil prices in 2014. Like you were going to show up and it's going to be like Mad Max. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you go out to the, the valley and... <laughs> no. <laughs> um, that's an interesting perspective from someone who just arrived because... I would say that for someone who's lived here a long time, the mentality of the recession is that it's significant and real and there's kind of this negative outlook. Yeah. So, I mean, the unemployment rate is, it is, uh, you know, I think more than twice uh, the national average. National average is 3.9, maybe 4% right now. Alaska is seven and a half or so. Uh, so there are a lot of people that are actively searching for a job. And, and just can't find one. So I'm sure those people, you know, they, they, they are feeling like we're in a recession. Mm -hmm. uh, so. so other than unemployment rate, what would be some of the indicators of a recession that, that might indicate what you're thinking of a recession but isn't really happening here? Yeah, so I guess the reason that I was anticipating something more profound was because of what happened the last time in Alaska, oil prices came crashing down. They came crashing down in the early 1980s, and apparently it was a bit like, <laughs> from what I hear, like Mad Max-ish, right? <laughs> so it, it was it was, uh, it was was really devastating, and uh, a whole bunch of people left the state, right? So I think we've lost a couple thousand now uh, recently, but um, but it was it had a much, much more profound impact, and so... It was kind of, you know, I had, I've had a lot of conversations with my colleagues and people at ICER about this. And, and there was a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen and what will happen in the near future. Because the Alaskan economy is fundamentally different than it was back in the early 1980s. But there are still questions about how diversified it is, right? So how many jobs do depend upon the extraction of oil? This was something out of Alaska's control. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can't give you the uh, you know, a good explanation of why oil prices fell in the early 1980s. Uh, economists do debate, you know, whether or not OPEC has any control of oil prices today. Yeah. I think my understanding is that they probably did have some control in the early 1980s and late 70s. Um, but it is debated about how much control they actually did have. Um, but yeah, events in the Middle East certainly impacted uh, oil prices and that it's, you know, Almost entirely out of the, out of control of, of yeah, Alaska. Right? Basically, we're not in control of our own destiny, our economic destiny. Well, I think we can't affect it, though. Right. So there are things that we can do to try to avoid, um, you know, the, the hardships associated with falling oil prices. So smoothing, we should be, you know, we should be smoothing out our our revenue stream. We have a state government that's hugely dependent upon oil revenue. What, 90, 85, 90% of the state's budget comes from um, oil taxes. So when the price of oil goes down, oil industries lay workers off. And at the same time, the state government doesn't have any money. That's not great. What you want is to have state government spending more money when the private sector contracts, right? Yeah, exactly. We don't have that system set up here. Um, we could have that system set up here, right? We've got a $60 billion savings account um, that we could use to smooth public revenue and, and enhance public revenue during drops in oil prices and then cut back on public spending during uh, high oil prices. So how, how, can you explain this for the average Alaskan, how important in a recession and why it's important for public spending? Because I don't think the average Alaskan understands that. Okay. You know, how important these services are to like um, propping up your economy. So um, 
for the record, I don't think I understand, just so nobody <laughs> out there feels dumb. Okay. Well, I'm not sure I fully understand, but, but this, this, this is the theory. Uh, so, um, you know, an economy is not a business, right? And I think people fundamentally, fundamentally make that mistake. We make that mistake when, you know, Mitt Romney says, oh, make me president because I am, uh, you know, I've worked in the, in the private sector and Trump says the same thing. And, and Democrats would say the same thing if they had business sector experience. Um, but macro economies operate in a fundamentally different way from a firm, right? So when a firm experiences, um, you know, negative profits, right? What do they do? They cut, cut costs, right? Uh, and that is the instinctive reaction that people have when there's a macroeconomic downturn. Well, we're running a budget, the state needs to cut costs. The difference though, is that in a macro economy, it's as if there's one firm that's employing all the people, and when they, you know, decrease their uh, the number of people that they're employing, those people now don't have any income to buy the goods that that firm is producing. And so, um, you know, with one firm, that's it's okay. You can cut costs and let people go because other people will still have income. They'll come want to come buy your stuff. But if people are getting laid off. They don't want to go buy things. Why? Because they don't know that they're going to be able to pay off their credit cards. They're, they're scared about the economic future, so they want to save. They don't want to go buy things. And if they're not going out and buying things, then firms are not going to employ people to produce things that are not being bought, right? And so the idea there is, is that the government can come in and say, all right, we're going to provide some stimulus. We're going to, we're going to give people a reason or ability to go out and buy things, right? And Governor Walker recently took, and his administration took... Um half of the PFD and used it as, as stimulus, correct? Is that how you would say? Instead of like it being like stimulus to the individual, it became stimulus to the, to the macroeconomic firm that is Alaska. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the intent was stimulus. I think the intent was to pay bills, right? To, to avoid making larger cuts to UAA, for example. But, but the idea is that is stimulus, correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, again, I'm, yeah, I... Technically speaking, fiscal stimulus occurs when the government engages in expansionary policy like cutting taxes or increasing spending for the purpose of, um, you know, affecting some macroeconomic outcome. And, and I, again, I, I, sure, if you want to call it stimulus, okay. In my view, I, I think they're, they're trying to figure out how to, how to make the, the budget balance. Um, but, it, but it would have the same effect. So let's talk a little bit about the resource curse. If I'm understanding that correctly... It's the idea that countries with a lot of natural resources tend to stagnate economically, democratically, and developmentally. Mm -hmm. Is there evidence that this has happened, or is it kind of like anecdotal, like kind of uh, kind of situation by situation? Mm -hmm. So you can find certain examples in which a resource curse almost, I think, undoubtedly has happened. Sierra Leone might be one with with conflict generated by the uh, diamond mines. The the bigger question is, is this something that happens on average? Should we expect an economy to falter after discovering a natural resource? So, and that is, evidence is more mixed. Um, it's become at least more mixed recently. In the past, I think there was stronger purported evidence of a resource curse. So there was this famous paper in 1995 written by Jeffrey Sachs and Andrew Warner, where they show that countries that were very dependent upon natural resources. So countries with, with very large resource dependence in 1970 
grew relatively slowly from 1970 to 1990. So the more dependent you were upon natural resources, the slower you grew over the, over the, the subsequent 20 years. And what, what do you mean by slower they, they grew? Uh, slower growth in terms of um, uh, real growth in uh, per capita income, GD, GDP per capita. And, and so if you take that to this, your, the logical conclusion, if a country is growing slower than some other country year after year after year, well, at some point it's going to have a lower income level. And they find that this result is very robust. So um, since that paper was published, a bunch of other papers have been published showing that, yeah, there's a, there tends to be a negative relationship between economic growth and, and resource dependence. See, now, I wouldn't even consider that because you think of all these places that, that experience um, oil, and like Venezuela, for example, 18 cents a gallon, you know, for, mm-hmm. for gas. And, and you think of what they're able to do, what they're able to build. Look at the um, United Arab Emirates and the expansion of Dubai, right? That mm-hmm. all seems like massive amounts of growth, even what happens in Alaska. So like just looking from the outside in and not understanding that, I would not come to that conclusion whatsoever. Right. So does, does that have anything to do with the, the short term effects and the long term effects? Yeah. Yeah. So let me. So. So. OK. So um, I was also very surprised to, f- to find this out. Right. Because I my, when I was uh, doing my, my undergrad in economics, I was taught that there's three forms of capital. There's human capital, education, physical capital, buildings and computers, and then natural capital, natural resources. Natural resources should fuel economic growth and development, right? Because you can sell off the natural resources, take that revenue, and then invest in human capital or physical capital, and that should fuel economic growth and development, right? So there's this perplexing result where it's not just countries that are dependent upon natural resources that grow slowly. U.S. states that are dependent upon natural resources grow slowly. U.S. counties that are dependent upon natural resources grow slowly. So when I was in graduate school and I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, there is... There, this, there's this, this negative relationship between de- resource dependence and growth is so robust, so consistent, that there should be pretty obvious explanation for this, right? So it's probably not that natural resources fuel conflict, because that might apply to the international stage, but that doesn't explain why, why resource-rich U.S. counties would grow slowly, right? We don't have civil conflicts break out when oil is discovered in, in, the North, in North Dakota. So um, I was actually talking to my dad about this idea. He's uh, an economist, recently retired. And um, we were talking about this idea. And we came up with this this alternative explanation for why resource-rich economies grow slowly. And that that idea turned into the first chapter of my dissertation at Wyoming and got uh, published the idea in the Journal of Development Economics. And what that paper shows is that Uh, In fact, there is a very intuitive, simple explanation for why resource-dependent economies grow slowly, and it's that typically natural resource sectors grow slowly, right? So either because of falling production or falling commodity prices. So commodity prices fell from 1960 to early 2000s rather consistently. Can you explain commodity prices? Which ones? Which commodities? So things like the price of of food. So when I mentioned Socks and Warner's paper where they looked at resource dependence and growth, resource dependence, a big chunk of that was actually exports of agriculture, right? So agriculture prices fell a lot since 1960. And so what what I argue happens is that because uh, it just has happened that since 1960, about the time that we started collecting data, these prices were falling. These sectors were shrinking. 
And so then when The Economist comes along and looks and says, okay, which one of these countries are resource dependent? You find that the ones that, that are producing a whole bunch of food are growing slowly because the prices is the price of food is falling. And so effectively what this what this means is that an economy that experiences the discovery of a resource say that that elevates income levels but can simultaneously induce slow growth. And so in fact it would it would be inappropriate to say that an economy that is that has a higher income level but also slow growth has been cursed in some way. I'm happy to experience slow growth if I have a higher income level, right? That's what really matters. And so there's a couple of conclusions that came from that. One is that if we're going to test for a resource curse, we need to look at the long run, not the short run. And we need to look at levels of income, not growth in income. What do you mean by that? Levels in income versus growth in income? So growth would be uh, growth in uh, GDP per ca- state GDP per capita in Alaska from 1970, uh, let's say 1980 to 1990. So the amount of money available to us? Uh, on average. Yeah, so, on average, so yeah, per capita. To- total production in the state of Alaska divided by total population, That's it g- gives you an average income level. Yep. And from 1970, uh, sorry, from 1980 to 1990, average income in Alaska grew much more slowly than probably any other state in the nation. Why was that? Because oil prices came crashing down. But growth in average income from 1970 to 1980, during a time in which oil prices were rising rapidly, average income in Alaska grew more rapidly than probably any other state. So is it the extreme booms that make us less aware of the extreme busts psychologically? I don't know that we're not aware of the busts, right? Um, maybe maybe we just feel them more acutely. Yeah. So w- there's a whole literature that economics on loss aversion. It, it's it's <laughs> we we feel losses more than we feel gains. Um, I had a fat tire bike, uh, acquired a fat tire bike a few years ago. It made me happy. I discovered it had been stolen out of my shed yesterday. I think that made me feel worse than than you know when I uh, uh, got it. So. Loss aversion. Loss aversion, yeah. Well, well, if it makes you feel any better, everybody in Anchorage is getting shit stolen. <laughs> I know, so I've become a statistic. Dude, I'm, yeah. I'm still good. I moved here in May and nothing yet, so. <laughs> you better count your blessings, dude. I am every day. <laughs> okay, so going off of that, do Alaskans suffer from the resource curse? The way I think about it is that when... when we discovered Prudhoe Bay, the size of the uh, economic pie got bigger in Alaska. And a bunch of people moved into the state to capitalize on that. There was high wages being offered. Average income was high. People thought, yeah, I'm going to move to Alaska. And a bit speculative, but in my view, what happened was a bunch of these people decided to stay. And then the pie started shrinking. And so we have this kind of artificially elevated level of population and um, uh, because of this boom. And so in that sense, yeah, we it kind of makes sense that average income level isn't any higher than it otherwise would have been. And in fact, I, it would actually be from an economist standpoint, I would say it's, it would actually be more surprising to see that average income level was higher in the long run in Alaska because we have fluid borders, right? If What do you mean by fluid borders? Uh, for my, migration. So if there's, you know... Uh, you know, uh, say there's an oil boom in uh, in Oregon. Yeah. 
or any time of ec- any type of economic boom, and the average income level in Oregon is a million dollars a year. Yeah. What are the three of us going to do? We're going to move to Oregon. We're going to move to Oregon and, yep. and start making a million dollars yeah. a year. And when we show up, what is that going to do to the average wage rate in Alaska or in Oregon? It's going to put downward pressure on that because you increase supply, in this case, labor, that drives down the wage. And so, yeah, when there was this economic boom in Alaska, High wages are being offered, income's high, a bunch of people move in, that drives down the average so, income. So what I'm starting to understand here is that because we're so dependent on this one type of uh, industry to develop our economy, it's not very like a, would homeostatic be the right term? It kind of varies. We have these booms, we have these busts, these influx of populations. Yeah. These, so it's, it's a non-sustainable growth. And we also, it seems like we don't know how to take the profits from the oil and put them into a place where we can create more of like a um a, a more sustainable growth, I guess you know. And we we talked to uh, the curator of the of of the museum, Aaron, right? Yeah, the the uh, curator of Alaska history and culture and at, we, at the museum. And we discussed the PFD, and the PFD was basically created the permanent fund in order to uh, to give money from from oil production back to the residents of Alaska. And what he said the idea behind it was that with the money in the hands of the citizens versus the government, they would better control how that money was spent and the and the growth. You know, and so it seemed like that was the way for us to best develop our economy was through the hands of the citizen. You know, do you have any thoughts on that and like how we can yeah. take this money and would would that would that help us get uncursed? So uh... I don't know that, again, so getting back to the, the thing you just said, so the, I don't think that, that oil has, my guess is that oil is not, you know, so-called cursed uh, Alaska. Again, I think the, the average income level is about where it would have been. Now, what, um, Cody? Dustin. Dustin, sorry. What Dustin is, he's asking a slightly different question, which is, could we have better utilized these these, okay. these short run okay. boots, right? So it's yep. a slightly different, more nuanced question that I think is actually a, a better, more important question okay. um, that Alaskans should be asking is, what can we do to better harness this gift? Yes. Um, and, and I do have a few thoughts on this. Uh, so, you know, one concern when an economy is experiencing a big economic boom, something like a resource boom, is, is a Dutch disease. And the Dutch disease is named after the experience of um, discovering natural gas and extracting natural gas in the Netherlands. I think it discovered in, 19, in the 1950s, extracted in the 70s, something like that. But um, what, they, what they found was that when they started exporting large amounts of natural gas, they found that their traded, their manufacturing sector shrank, dried up. And the idea there is that when you're exporting a bunch of natural resources, that causes uh, uh, the uh, exchange rate to appreciate and makes it harder for manufacturers to export their products. People don't want to buy those now relatively expensive products. And so it makes it, it's harder for these other industries to compete with that, right? And so in Alaska, if there's this sudden inflow of cash and people go out and start buying a bunch of stuff, that can cause prices to go up. But traded goods, manufactured goods... The price of these things, you know, anybody producing a manufactured good in Alaska can't raise the price of that because people will just go buy it off Amazon if the price is any higher than what it is online, right? So you can't yeah. raise the prices of the traded goods. You can raise the price of the service goods. And so the concern there is if you dump a bunch of cash onto the market really quick, um, it'll cause these, these traded sectors to shrink up. And if I was producing a manufactured good and I experienced that in, say, the 1970s, I might 
if I wanted to produce my manufactured good, I might move to another state, produce it somewhere where I don't have that that risk. So right? what what would those what would those manufactured goods in Alaska look like? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, that the, was one of my questions, Dustin. Yeah, oh, sorry, man. The private sector. <laughs> The private sector is ingenious, though. If a dollar can be made, somebody will figure out how to make it. Totally. Um, and so I don't know what it would be, but um, well, w- w- would we have more manufacturing if we didn't have the, if we didn't have the oil? Maybe. You know, there's uh, there's two sides to every coin, and I think that's one thing that Alaskans need to realize with the oil is that like it's not just this. Um, you know this this perfect. How how would you put it? You know, like I don't know, like the, this blessed resource that 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 we've found that we can just you know, ride the coattails of. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I think to a certain extent that's been happening, maybe, um, you can find examples of that. I think, I think, you know, so getting back to how do you optimally manage this thing? So one is, you know, don't dump it all into the market at the same, right at one time. Right. And another thing I would say is, is yeah, volatility. Um, there was a paper, uh, written by, uh, uh, Rick Vanderplug and Stephen Pollock, where they find they they claim that volatility is the quintessential um, cause of a resource curse, and it's the volatility that kills economic development. Can you explain that a little bit? Um, so yeah, so I get I get a little bit like the example I gave before the Dutch disease. So if you are a potential manufacturer and you're considering doing business in a place that uh, experiences these these massive shocks where you might go bankrupt when the price of oil is cut in half? Are you going to set up shop there? Are you going to set up shop where, you know, uh, things are a bit less volatile? People uh, typically tend to be risk averse. I'm not going to want to set up shop in the place. All else equal, I'm not going to want to set up shop in the volatile economy. Um, So yeah, I can drive away business, that volatility. And so again, find a way to smooth that public revenue to try to smooth out these these boom and bust cycles in Alaska. That's that's something I think we should... In fact, when I moved up here, I, I assume that's what... The whole point of the dividend, or not the dividend, the uh, the wealth fund was. I didn't realize it's really just a savings account. Um, we have the um, the constitutional budget reserve, which is great. That's what we should. Unfortunately, it wasn't bigger. Um, so explain these things a little um, more basic. The uh, the the wealth fund so and the budget. So we've got this wealth fund, um, and uh, and it's you know sixty billion dollars sitting in this diversified account, right? So it's invested throughout the world and. That principle that we put in there, we can't touch it. We can't take any of that money out. Um, but it does earn interest each year, millions of dollars, and that's put into this uh, the earnings reserve account, right? And so it, from that earnings reserve account, that's where the dividend checks come from. Uh, there's some inflation proofing, so some of that money is put back into the uh, the wealth fund uh, to account for inflation. And then I think typically the whatever's left over is just goes back into the wealth fund. Um, I could be wrong on that, but I'm sure that's right. And so I guess the one option would be if you wanted to smooth out some of these cycles is to say, you know, um, put all the money into, and it's, you know, it's complicated, but but you put the money into an account and then say the, the government just took, you know, whatever, $8 billion out of this account every year. And no matter what oil prices were doing, they took $8 billion dollars. Then when the price of oil goes down, the state's still spending the same amount of money, when, and, but they would be drawing down the fund then. And then when oil prices are higher, when they go back up to $110 a barrel, uh, then that fund is getting bigger, but then you've perfectly smoothed. It's smoothing, revenue, yes, exactly. Right? And, and yep. so that in terms of, you know, 
trying to diversify the economy, providing a more stable environment would be a good idea. Um, so that's one thing. And then I also, you know, I think it's really unfortunate that Alaska repealed its state income tax. Um, I might get a rock through my window later for saying that, but, um, I think there's there's a couple of benefits of a state income tax in this environment. One is that, again, helping to smooth state revenue. If we get 90% of our money from oil and the price of oil goes down, well, our budget was just destroyed, right? So getting a bit more diversified uh, you know, stream of revenue would be a good idea. And then the other thing that's a little bit less intuitive is, is this idea that there needs to be taxation for there to be representation. So it takes that, that common adage and kind of flips it around. And this this makes some good sense. So um, even though it is a, a little bit unintuitive, it, it was for me at first. But so um, the idea here is that if, if people are not being taxed, we don't pay attention to what our elected representatives are up to, right? And we they, have less ownership over well, actually what's happening yeah, in, in our society. Their yeah. policies are more beholden to the people who are paying for those policies to be enacted. So they're inevitably going to be dealing with the oil companies and the lobbyists and those corporations and listening to them because that's where they're getting their money versus listening to the average citizen. This is something we that's actually right. discussed before too. And we're starting to realize there's all these ups and downs, these pitfalls of oil and what it means. But like there has to be this message that goes out to the average Alaskan and to the policymakers, you know, so that we can make informed decisions. Because I feel like right now we're lost and we don't know what to do. You know, so how can we take all of this economic data that you're producing that is not even relatable or understandable to the average Alaskan and, and put it into his head, his or her head, so they can make informed decisions and we can control our destiny? So one is kind of a, one answer is to say, well, give them an incentive to. And so I think part of the reason people don't have an incentive to pay a lot of attention to what's going on is that um, getting back to this taxation necessary for representation argument is that, you know, um, money's not fungible. How you spend it, how careful you are with it, what you do with it depends on how you got it. Blows my mind every time I think about it because I think of people as being such rational economic creatures. But so if you're walking down the street and you're going to go to dinner with some friends and you look down and you see a $100 bill on the sidewalk, how do you spend that $100 bill that night? On dinner. On dinner for you and your friends? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know because I've only lost $100 bills out of yeah. my pocket. I've never found them. Maybe so, it's me finding your $100 bill. Yeah. So, so <laughs> most people at least would say, I think that, oh, well, I'm going to go buy, I'm going to go buy drinks for my friends. Right, I just I just got this windfall of a hundred dollars. I'm gonna free money, yeah. yeah, for free money, easy come, easy go. And so you go out and you buy drinks from your friends, and you wake up the next morning, and your life hasn't changed much. But that was a hundred dollars, right? And you would not have taken a hundred dollars of the money that you earned and bought in those drinks with it, right? Interesting. And well, that's why there's so many sales here around PFD time. You know, everyone, have you ever tried to go to fucking Best Buy? <laughs> during PFD season, <laughs> everyone's buying a flat screen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, that, that's an interesting point. Uh, so, yeah, and, and, and similar stories can be told for winning the lottery, right? So people win the lottery, they tend to work less, earnings to go down. Um, I just read something the other day that when you win the lottery, for, for a typical person that's won, won the lottery, the likelihood that they have declared bankruptcy within two years has gone down relative to somebody that also plays the lottery but did not win. So that's good. But five years later, there's no difference in the likelihood that you have declared bankruptcy. So, so again, further evidence that there's this, you know, 
people use money differently when it's just given to them as opposed to earned. And so then getting back to Alaska, you know, when the state spends money on, um, you know, a fish processing plant or uh, microloans, um, when they when they spend money on something that, you know, maybe Alaskans, if they really looked at it, they'd be like, no, I don't I don't want money spent on that. But we don't do that because we don't feel like it's our money. So it's like, you know, I've got my income. The government's not taxing me and, and, and my own uh, money. So they can go do what they're going to do. Right. And so that, you know, gives government the opportunity to maybe use money in a way that's not ideal. And so I'd say instituting that income tax uh, would, yeah, you know, potentially help um, provide some needed oversight, get government to P- use public money engagement more. more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, Do you know how this affects uh, political corruption? I was reading in that in yeah. that uh, article in the Anchor Daily News, and the the journalist who, who wrote that said something to the effect of political corruption goes up in states where oil is found. Yeah. So, uh, and I think actually it was your new data that that suggests that. Yeah. So there's, uh, an existing literature that links natural resource wealth to political corruption and a variety of bad, uh, institutional outcomes across countries. There's not a lot of work that's been done on this across us states. Uh, so there is some existing evidence that first of all, oil rich states um, don't tax very much. And that's because of the, the tax revenue they're collecting from natural resources. In Alaska, that's not a terribly surprising thing to hear. But, but so, so, so natural resources do redu- reduce taxation. It's also been shown that uh, in oil rich states, when the price of oil goes up, voter turnout goes down. So there is this link between uh, natural resource shocks and, 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 you know, voter apathy measured as voter turnout. And then the next link in this is, does that apathy, perhaps created by the lack of taxation, cause, you know, something like political corruption? So I've looked into that a bit. Uh, I don't have anything peer-reviewed and published. Uh, and the evidence is mixed. Uh, and what I mean by that is, so if I look at the relationship between the average amount of, of oil produced across states, so oil produced per capita from like the 70s to today, relative to um, convictions of political corruption uh, by the Federal Justice Department, there's a strong positive correlation. So states that have produced a lot of, of oil over the last 40 years, on average, over those years, they've sent a lot of politicians to jail. Um, and Alaska might be number one. Any specific type of corruption? I don't have that data. I, my, my data set is just simply number of convictions of corruption by state. Yeah, but I, so it sounds like there's two ideas that, that kind of leads to that. The fact that there's a lot of money floating around that wasn't there and that's human nature is probably to yeah. corrupt and get your hands on it a little yeah. bit. And then the fact that no one's looking yeah. because they don't need to because that's, times are good. I'm not paying taxes. Whatever. Yep. Yeah. That's exa- so it's almost like a perfect storm, right? So the, there's, there's rents that firms want to protect, and they're willing to give some of that to politicians that will protect those rents. Yep. And then at the same time, voters aren't paying attention to what's happening because life is good for them. And so you potentially end up wasting a lot of a lot of revenue yeah. just being given to special interest groups, um, potentially. Um, so, so, so there is good so-called cross-sectional evidence. So these states in the long run that have a lot of oil 
they 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 have suffered uh, high levels of corruption. Um, but there's a big but here. So that does not mean I love big butts. Yeah, <laughs> I, can't, I can't lie. Uh, so um, that that does not mean that oil caused. The corruption, right? Showing that there's just that there's a correlation between oil and, and political corruption. Because it could be that, say, large, sparsely populated states suffer from corruption because of the sparse populations. So there is some, some evidence that suggests that having uh, a large amount of the state population living away from the capital can cause corruption rates to be high because you don't have as many people living around the capital. Uh, asking questions. You don't have as many nosy newspaper reporters poking around and asking questions because they live in Anchorage, not Juneau, for example. Um, and so, and then it could just so happen coincidentally that these large sparsely populated places are also the ones that have the oil, right? So in that case, it's not the oil causing the corruption. It's the fact that they're big sparsely populated places. And so if you want to try to get at whether a, a better um, indicator that oil is causing the corruption is to look at what happens to levels of corruption in an oil-rich state when the price of oil goes up. Okay. And look at what happens to rates of corruption when the price of oil goes down within that same state. Um, and for that, I don't find a lot of evidence, to be honest. Um, there is, I think there is, there is some evidence that that happened in Alaska. Uh, but outside of Alaska, it's, it doesn't appear to be something that is um, uh, robust. Now, that doesn't mean that, that oil is not still causing corruption. Uh, it could be that uh, it's a long-run effect, but um, there's no um, – I, I, I can't draw a conclusion right now about Yeah, but that. when we're looking at oil's effects on our economy, corruption might not be the first place we want to put our time into is what you're saying. Well, corruption is super important, right? Um, if politicians are corrupt, they're um, going to take some of that – revenue and give it to their friends. They're going to give tax breaks to companies that um, do favors for them. Um, and that money is, there's an opportunity cost there. It's not going to be used for uh, K through 12 education. It's not going to be used for healthcare. It's not going to be used to fix roads. Um, and and that is bad for economic development. So it, it is super important. So okay. if I'm understanding this correctly, it's um, maybe it's not necessarily specific to a resource rich economy, it is specific to the money that comes along with it. So this could, this economy could blow up because of prostitution or something like that, you know, just something outrageous, right? And, and that money would, would exacerbate the, um, the, the corruption in, in political spheres yeah, in so the same way. I get the, the one unique aspect of natural resources though, is that say, take Silicon Valley, the tech boom. Yeah. So California is creating is, is the government's getting a whole bunch of revenue from the taxation of the people that are participating in that economic boom, right? But with an energy boom, they're taxing the extraction of the natural resource, not taxing its people. So that, that is one fundamental difference there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So what happens in the future when we run out of oil? So... I think another misconception about the conclusion of my recent research is that if we if oil was eliminated today, nothing would happen. <laughs> and that is not what uh, my research implies. It would be devastating if we ran out of oil if it just went away today. Um, so 
eventually Alaska will run out of oil. Uh, but I don't know if it's 50 years from now or 500 years from now. People f have famously made predictions about peak oil in the past. And can you explain peak oil? So peak oil is the idea that, you know, so the U.S. reaches peak oil when, when uh, at, at the point in time when we're producing the maximum amount of oil that we'll ever produce. Yeah. And so people made predictions that the U.S. was going to reach peak oil by you know, the first in like the 1920s. Uh, and then there was a famous prediction made in the 50s uh, that we're going to reach peak oil in around the late 70s. And then we did reach peak oil in the, in the late 70s. And it was this amazing prediction. And, and um, uh, it was like Hubert, um, something like Hubert, I think, um, made that prediction. And he was right. And we reached peak oil and production in the U.S. declined from the late 70s onward until fracking. Yep. And then there was this another explosion in production. It's possible, I think, actually, we're producing more oil today. I just read yesterday, I think it was, that we are actually uh, producing the most oil of any nation in the world. Yeah. It just happened. Yeah. Like, USA is back, baby. Yeah, so <laughs> USA, Russia, and Saudi Arabia, those are the three big producers, right? Yep. Um, and so the, the, the problem with these predictions about when we're going to reach peak oil is that you implicitly are making an assumption about what's going to happen to technology. Okay. And this, this yeah, thing totally. is super, we just can't predict technological advancements. We, the, the first, uh, you know, oil crisis in the U.S. was actually not fossil fuel oil. It was whale oil. We, we, were, we were freaking out because we use whale oil to heat our homes and our lamps and everything. And all the whales were going away. And we were like, ah, what are we going to do with our whales? And then we discovered this other, this other uh, natural resource. And um, dinosaur oil, dinosaur yeah. oil. I mean, and now, now look, it's in the tar sands, right? I mean, there's in yeah. Alberta, so tar sands, and then there's the um, so there's shale oil, which is what people are fracking for in North Dakota, but yep. then there's oil shale, which is uh, you know, these these hydrocarbon deposits. I'm not a geologist and I'm gonna botch this, but the, the, <laughs> the, these these uh, it's 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 effectively, I guess. Um, you know, crude oil that hasn't been finished cooking. Yeah. Um, it's, it's still in kind of rock form. But the technology does exist to actually finish the cooking process and get crude oil out of that. Uh, it's just not economically efficient right now. But there are huge deposits of, this, of these oil shales in the United States. And are we going to figure out how to economically extract that crude oil? Maybe. Or are we going to figure out how to make it economically feasible to um, frack at a larger scale in Alaska? Maybe. Um, and so, yeah, I hesitate to say, say anything about when we're going to run out of oil. Um, but I, I think when that time does come, I think Alaska is going to be fine. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, this is an amazing place. And not because we have oil, but uh, because of the salmon and the bears and the glaciers and the people. This is important stuff. You know, what drives us as economic creatures? What's our economic identity as Alaskans, you know? And since I moved back, I've been trying to figure that out, you know? How do we think about this stuff? And sometimes I don't I don't think we, we fully think about it, right? So I'm going to paint a picture of just like a random Alaskan, okay? Let's call him Chad Brad. Dustin. No, no. <laughs> I'm no, I'm nowhere near average. Okay. Let's let's call him Chad Brad. First name Chad, last name Brad, right? Okay. So Chad Brad, you know, graduated high school, got a job on the slope. Okay, he's pulling in tons of money. Two weeks on, two weeks off. He's partying, blowing, whatever. You know, he's got his own house. Blowing? 
blowing his money. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Good Lord, Dustin. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I sometimes I miss words, but anyway, we're paint, we're painting the scenario here. Okay. So Chad, he's making tons of money. He's he's twenty three. He's got himself a house, a couple snow machines. Things are going good. You know. One night out at the peanut farm, he blacks out and he meets a woman. Right. Well, they end up getting married. This this woman's Polly. They have five kids. Right. He eventually has to come off the slope, get a job. Now he's working, and he's but he's he's lived in. He's worked in the fossil fuel extraction industry his whole life. You know, he's driving trucks. He's getting a permanent fund dividend, you know, that's bringing in ten dollars to $20,000 a year, and he's never paid taxes, you know. How's he getting ten dollars to $20,000 a year from? Because his kids. Oh, he's got a bunch of kids. Yeah, five kids. Remember, Ch- oh, Chad and Polly right. had five kids. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What, what are you getting at here? What, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is, like, how do we speak to the Chad Brads of Alaska and get them to, to look at this, you know, and, and to make informed decisions? About where we can go, you know. How do you how do you speak to Chad? How, because how do you convince Chad that there should be an income tax? How do you convince Chad that there should be an income tax? <laughs> That's a good question, and um, I don't know. You know, I mean, I think it, so. Why doesn't Chad want an income tax? He doesn't. He doesn't want an income tax for one of two reasons. He thinks he'll be taxed, but the way you described his life, he probably would not be taxed by an income tax because it tends to be quite. Typically, it's progressive, right? Rich people pay the income tax, poor people don't. Maybe he doesn't know that. So you could maybe explain that to him. Though, I think a lot of people do know that, and they still don't want an income tax. A lot of poor people know that, and they still don't want an income tax because they feel like they're getting a a free handout, and they don't want that handout. And I I get that. So, you know, start by educating. Um, That's a weak answer. You know, This is a tough one. This is a tough one. Yeah. I I, I don't know. but um, but but I would say you know giving Chad the opportunity to go to college is a good idea. Um, so maybe you could start there. But that's a weak answer. Yeah, but it, it makes sense. The, the more educated, the more aware you are of kind of these like this bigger picture stuff. Yeah. You know, I think college kind of uh, teaches you about the world you're a part of in yeah. a way that you might not find out without going to college. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, since I've been here at UAA, I think the College of Business has increased the cost of a, of a uh, college class by something like 20%. Um, assuming that, you know, the demand curve slopes downward for education, um, probably some people are not going to college that otherwise would have or not taking business classes that otherwise would have. Some people are going out of state to go to school instead of staying in state to go to school. That's problematic because once you go out of state for college, you're something like 50% less likely to live in the state you were born in five years after you graduate. And we need people like you guys here um, who happen to go away, but you did come back. Um, a lot of people don't come back. And I think that we need that young energy, those entrepreneurs, as I said, people that will take the risks and try something new, um, start it, start their own business. And, and education, I think, is, is relatively cheap here. Um, so that's good. That is something that, that we've done right. Um, but um, could be better. Would universal college education, w- would that help out that situation? Hmm. Yeah, so uh, it's a bit complicated because what, what, what the incentives that that creates. So if you get free education, that might be enough to make somebody move up to Alaska, stay for a year, get residence, and then, and then start going to school, right? Um, well, Chad would have gone to college instead of going up to the slope That's to work. Right. So right? There, there's, a, there's a literature on this that says actually one reason why research economies might suffer from bad, bad economic outcomes is because it, it 
disincentivizes people from going to school. So, and there's pretty good evidence of this. Appalachia, when the coal industry boomed, uh, high school dropout rates increased, graduation rates fell. And during the coal bus, graduation rates increased, dropout rates fell. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's something to be said for that. And I think on the one hand, if Chad can drop out of school and go work in the oil field and make a hundred grand a year, that, that sounds like optimal economic behavior, right? He's making an optimal choice. I can go make a bunch of money and then I'll go back to school afterwards and, and finish my job. But I think there's a, a psychological, uh, you know, uh, failure here, which is that Chad is, is, uh, overestimating his ability to go back to school and he doesn't take into account the fact that he's going to buy a truck and, and I don't remember what his it, it's, it's a house. It's Polly. Polly. Yeah. Polly. Yeah, Polly. He, he's he's going to, he's going to get, he's going to get Polly uh, pregnant and then he's going to have a bunch of kids and now you can't go back to school. You have too many financial commitments. Right. And, um, so to the extent that people don't anticipate that, then then people could be made poorer. Well, and uh, you know, you think about this, that. it's like Chad got on the smack early, right? He's making good money, the oil smack, right? Yeah. But now Chad's 45 and has a family and has to start making the decisions, whether it's just through his vote or, you know, just whatever it is to, to control his destiny. That's what happens as you get older, right? You start thinking about the state you're living in. And because he got on that smack early and that money, he is not going to be as informed. And now he can't look at the world around him for what it is. Right. So what do, I, what I think, do, yeah, go what, ahead. What do you guys think? How do you make Chad, uh, you know, how do you inform Chad about the benefits of something like an income tax? I, I don't know. We're not the economist. Well, no, that's the thing. I mean, <laughs> you know, one of the most important things that I learned from college was not necessarily uh, in in the curriculum in the classes, but it was... The process through which I I went through the, the maturation, right, and and then what one of the most important things that I learned was the, to be a lifelong learner, right. So if you don't understand something, go to a bookstore. You know Jerry Seinfeld in his book Sign Language has this this joke that I'm going to totally butcher, but it's something to the effect of if you walk into a bookstore and don't walk out with a book, you are the most arrogant person in the world because there is always something in there that you don't know. Well, I think you did butcher it because it starts with "What's the deal with bookstores?" <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Alex, who would disagree with you and why? On what? On on your economic standpoint, the, the curse of oil. Yeah. Most people in Alaska, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, so again, I don't, um, I don't, I, I don't think, I have not found evidence that oil has, has made Alaska worse off. Um, I've been surprised at the lack of evidence I've found that suggests we are much better off, right? Um, and so... I think people would disagree with that perspective who uh, have lived in Alaska for a long time. As I think at the beginning of this, this podcast, we're talking about people that lived through the first oil boom, right? So um, I, I was surprised at the response that the uh, – so, you know, this, this article came out in the ADN, uh, Charles Wolferth mm -hmm. interviewed yep. me about yeah, some of my research. And I, I was surprised at – the response, um, I read the comment section. Oh, that was, oh, your, no. that was your first mistake. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so people told me not to, but I read it because I, you know, I did move up here to learn about Alaska and the people. And, and well, I, well, just so you know, the comment section is the lowest common denominator no, no, so, so, of Alaskans. Well, but that, I actually learned some interesting things. So, so, you know, the, so 
I don't presume to know everything about it. I don't, I know very little about Alaska. Um, and maybe average income level is not the outcome variable I should be looking at. And so some people pointed out that, you know, I should be, um, ironically, somebody said, who do you think, what do you think paid for your salary and the three universities in such a small state? And my thought was, well, the, the irony of, <laughs> of you saying that that's ironic is that I'm not sure that that was the efficient way to spend the money to have three universities in a state roughly the size population wise of Wyoming that has one university. So suppose we had done things differently, right? And we took instead of building uh, the last university to be built was Southeast. Suppose that we, we could go back in time and we just build one campus and we take all that money. We have UA statewide administration and then these three separate campuses. If we took all that money and put it into one campus, you know, what is that? That's the Harvard of the North. Mm-hmm. We have this internationally renowned, you know. Uh, so is, is that just because we would have like more of a focus of the direction? Yeah, by- I mean, our professors would be getting paid $300,000, $400,000 a year. We could get the best minds in the world to come here to, I'm assuming it would be in Anchorage. But <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so it makes it too cold. Yeah, it's too cold. Uh, I got off on a bit. So again, but I'm not suggesting that we should eliminate Southeast. We, we, that's not the path we took. Now we do have three campuses and this is the world we live in now. Um, and, and so anyway, getting back to the comment section, um, another thing people said was, you know, what do you think paid for the infrastructure? Well, that's an interesting question. And this is a question that can be answered. What was the effect of the oil boom on infrastructure in Alaska? Um, Surprisingly, so I've, I've started digging into this, and what I found actually is that so there was a massive increase in road construction from 1980 to 1990, the, the 10 years following, uh, sorry, uh, from 1970 to 1980, the, the 10 years that encompass the, the big oil boom, right? Yep. Road construction increased in Alaska by far larger than any other state. But the increase in road construction in the preceding 10 years from 1960 to 1970 was roughly the same, if not larger military military federal government the state had just become a state and the federal government's dumping all of this money in. it just became a state we also did discover oil but we have all of these things changing the, the you know in some sense the lower 48 was discovering alaska and and so we got this large shock created by a bunch of different things happening and i, I think so getting back to who would disagree with me people that in my view that perhaps incorrectly credit all of that development to oil. Um, and, and I think the, the mistake that people make is that, yeah, when they, that they potentially make is that Alaska without oil is not Alaska in 1950, right? So um, there was, you know, rampant disease, poverty, living conditions were, were terrible, in Alaska. In some places, some parts of Alaska, it's still terrible. Um, but that was also true, you know, Kansas in 1950, Northern California in 1950. Li- average life expectancy in 1950 was something like 65 years old. If you died at 60, you lived a long, healthy life, right? We Well, in Kansas, they're dying from boredom, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Shots fired, Kansas. Dustin. Sorry, sorry, Kansas, but so So we had, real. you know, life expectancy is now... What, 15, 15 years higher now? 86 and 88, male, female, respectively. Is I it think. that high? I believe so, um, nationally. So, so yeah, we're, there was, there was going to be economic development in Alaska anyway. The question is how much economic development would there have been? And, and the other mistake people make is that they think 
I saw that oil paid for this building, or I saw that oil paid for this road. And the assumption that they're making is that in the absence of oil, nothing else would have paid for that, mm -hmm. right? So take an extreme case. Suppose the federal government has an interest in, in having a, a population in Alaska. And, and I have no, uh, you know, this is fictional. I'm just making this up for yeah, the sake yeah. of, of example. But It's like Chad Brad. Like Chad Brad. Suppose that... Shout out to Chad Brad. <laughs> Suppose. You can still go back to school, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> so suppose that the federal government uh, wants, you know, 700,000 people to live in Alaska, and then we didn't discover oil, and the federal government finances that. We'd be in the same exact outcome and didn't have oil, right? So I don't think that would have happened. It's just, you know, we don't know what would have happened is the point. So Okay. So. I, well, that, you know, thinking like that makes you realize that you don't have to be so dependent on oil. As a state, you know what I mean? If we can get people to realize some of these things, they can remove themselves from the tit of oil, you know? The oil tit, of course. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's it's great that we have a $60 billion wealth fund, right? And um, I think it's great that we have, um, you know, almost free money. Um, the question is, yeah, can we... Can we just manage that differently and, and, and maybe get a bigger bang for, for the buck? Can we look outside at where other resource-dependent nations have gone right or wrong? You know, I think of uh, Venezuela as a place that possibly went wrong looking at it right now. And then you look at Saudi Arabia, who's on this, like, great, like, diversification program. You know, are there, you know I think of um, an article Thomas Friedman wrote in the, uh, in the New York Times oh, – 10, 15 years ago called People vs. Dinosaurs. And the idea was that it was Israel versus Iran, and Israel was investing in their people and in schools, and Iran was investing in dinosaurs in their oil. Mm -hmm. And that was going to change the long-term trajectory of each country, because you need to invest in your human capital, not just your resource capital. Mm -hmm. um, and and just, I, I, just getting the average Alaskan to realize that. Yeah, so what... I, I guess, so what... What uh, what would be the goal of that? So when you 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 seem you really want Alaskans to understand that there is you know that there's other options or well another way of Dustin doing just it. has it out for Alaskans. Well, no, I just I got I got upset when I saw the collapse of oil and all these like um these uh these budget problems we had and then the solutions right. And the solution was to take some money from the permanent fund dividend. And I just saw the anger out of Alaskans for that. Mm -hmm. And it was like, hard choices have to be made, mm -hmm. you know, inevitably because of the fact that we're on oil. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like no one was willing to like sit down and just be like, yeah, you're right. You know, right. They, they just can't accept it. Mm -hmm. And, and I, you know, and I feel like a better informed Alaska can come together and make decisions. I mean, the idea is that we're a democracy. We, we, we control our own destiny together. And so me and Cody, we, we talk a lot of shit on the media and that it's basically not doing its job. It's a major theme of this podcast, really. Yeah. And so our idea is like, how can we take, you know, the things you're studying, this information and present it out to Alaska and just let them use it, you know, not, mm. not present it with bias, just give it to them. And if they have it, what's that going to mean for the decisions we make, for the politicians we vote for, for the policies we're in favor of. Yeah. And going off of that, the, the information coming straight from you, because I think one of the one of the pitfalls of 
journalism, institutionalized journalism, is that it is going through the journalists, which is the conduit, or not the conduit, but it is being filtered. They're the filter, filtered mm-hmm. through them. Like your words are being filtered through them, and mm-hmm. they're they're picking through these sound bites that you know you're you're giving them, but it's not the full idea. Whereas mm-hmm. something like this, a long form podcast, yep. th- this is all you. Yeah. Basically, we've got some issues to solve as Alaskans, you know, and our yeah. What what drives us economically? Yeah. Um, I, I was surprised during this this conversation we've had in Alaska about how to uh, balance our budget that I, I don't remember hearing anybody float the idea that the uh, dividend checks should be um, you know needs tested. I was I was surprised about that that that, that, that there wasn't this idea like I don't need the dividend check. Yeah, right. no, c- completely. I've never yeah. heard that concept, and I sound. I feel like there would be a huge uproar yeah. if you even mentioned no, it. No, and it's and it's it needs concepts. Yeah, Can you? Yeah, yeah. So what I mean is, is that we had a discussion about whether or not we should limit the dividend checks to everybody. So right, we capped at a thousand dollars last year. Uh, I don't need the dividend check. Nobody in the college of business needs the dividend check. Yeah, like basically when you file your taxes, depending on what income bracket you fall in, you either get it or you don't. You know, it's like um, it's like a Medicaid, right? Yeah. You have to show your proof of income. And if you fall in a cer- certain place and you're eligible for that uh, state run insurance. Right. And so it would be the same thing for like the dividend. Like don't give it to the rich asshole down the road with the Lamborghini. So He's not an asshole, by the way. Yeah. Uh, it- Hey, you're talking about Chad Brad again. Yeah, Chad, <laughs> Chad Wood on a Lamborghini. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, and I don't know why why we didn't why why that idea was never floated. I guess so. Um, I did think it was unfortunate that we capped the dividend check at a thousand dollars for poor families that really depend on that money. It's hugely re- regressive to, to as a percent of their total income to cut the dividend in half, especially for Chad with a family of five. Like that's, that's potentially devastating, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, for wealthier Alaskans, yeah, we don't, we don't need it. And so instead of just taking it from the wealthy half, then we cut it for everybody. And that, that seems suboptimal to me, but um, you know, and I know a bunch of people will say, well, if you don't want your dividend check, then go ahead and, and donate it, right? But it's a bit like saying, all right, we're going to go to war in Iraq, um, uh, or I, I think we should go, and so I'm going to go by myself. Uh, it doesn't work if only I go. <laughs> well, <this has laughs> That's just called be, a vacation. <laughs> yeah, dangerous vacation. This is something that it only works if, if we do this together. So, Well, I think this comes down to, you know, our identity and our political identity, and, and we're more and more seeing ourselves not part of one community anymore Mm -hmm. and that's probably dictating our thinking on a lot of this you know there is no more like uh if i do something for you i'm going to benefit in return we don't seem to have that mentality as americans anymore and i wonder so some communities in america i imagine that um that view is more prominent i wonder if maybe we don't have that in alaska because we don't pay taxes so when you're paying taxes, it's you're I'm directly I'm taking care of you and you're taking care of me. We're in this thing together. Yeah. Um, and a lot of ownership, right? You, ownership over, I guess, of each other sounds bad, but but kind of you know, <laughs> well, even your community. You know, if you're paying taxes, yeah. you're looking outside, and even you know the the roads are getting fixed, and you can have this like perception that that's where my tax right. dollars went. Right. Right. Okay, so we we've talked a lot about Alaskans and what it means to be Alaskan. So to wrap it up here, you talked about um, Ship Creek in the beginning of this conversation. So if you had to 
put a um, put becoming Alaskan on the fast track for yourself? Like, what would be the most Alaskan thing that you would have to do? Yeah, what's your rite of passage? Yeah, um, I've got my dividend check, so um, something really badass, right? Like a, a two week float hike trip over you know a couple hundred miles or something like that. Maybe maybe that'd make me feel more Alaskan. Um, do you kill a moose? Do you have blood all over you? What's going on possibly, here? Possibly, yeah. Um, so I guess I don't know if this would make me feel more Alaskan. The, the thing I've always wanted to do is so okay. So way before Alaska was on my radar, I, I found this video on YouTube, um, and it was a this little docu series on Dick Prennicky's uh, cabin out at Twin Lakes. I think it is. Have you guys seen this? No. Oh, you should definitely YouTube Dick Prennicky, um, Twin Lakes, Alaska. I think it's we'll have to like, get the spelling of his name right because I don't want to just don't ask Google me how to Dick. Spell it right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, don't ask me how to spell it right now. But um, yeah, it's a great video. It's just that this guy goes out in like the seventies into you know nowhere Alaska and hand builds this cabin and he and he records the process and he's like a master carpenter and he, he records the process um, uh, on on this ancient. Um, you know video recorder and um and it's just it's epic it's so awesome just building his cabin so maybe building a cabin in alaska and 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 spending spending a winter in it so are you cutting down your own trees are you getting one of those like like, packages yeah no 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 build no no no, no, none of that none of that crap Actually, yeah, building a cabin and, and living in it. Yeah, so we did that when I was a kid, actually. No so I, I grew up um, where, where my family had a cabin um, 40 miles south of Cantwell, and basically you park on the side of the road and you go five miles in on the railroad tracks, and there's this old-ass log cabin there. Um, that that you, you, you helped build? I did not help to build it, no. But we're, we're living in it, right? And it's kind of getting old, dilapidated. Bears are starting to break in through the glass. Um, and so, you know, at this point, my my stepdad decides to uh to build a new cabin and so he bought like this crazy uh snow machine that has like two tracks and one ski it's called an alpine but it can it can basically like haul anything and pull stuff and so he would go out and find trees and cut them down haul them back and then he had his lumber mill and that's how he made his lumber and he built his cabin out there you know i was too young really to kind of help out but it was That's it was really cool. It, it was really cool to see that. And I, I think so. You saw somebody else become Alaskan out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you were vicariously Alaskan. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you guys feel Alaskan because you're from here, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yep. Been chased by bears. You know, I think that I've fallen into rivers. You know, at the age of like seven, like crazy cold ass rivers. Yeah. 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 I guess so. I guess I never really thought about it just because you, you grow up, you know, hunting, fishing. Mm-hmm. My dad uh, runs a, uh, a surfing charter outside of Seward. So, I mean, I guess it's all just, I mean, you, you feel it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I always like to see like Alaskan has this like romanticism that surrounds it and like almost like this mythicism, like this, this mythic place. And people are always thinking like, oh, you got to do something really badass to be Alaskan. So yours is building a cabin. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Building a cabin and, and living in it. Yeah. yeah. To live deliberately. Deliberately. Yeah, yeah it's got to be by choice. If it's not by choice, that's not going to be nervous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, well, cool. 
Cool, man. We this really appreciate great. it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for interviewing. And uh, yeah, good luck with what you guys are doing. Yeah. Well, awesome. you know, crude Meg, we're oil based. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's all right. <laughs> all right. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by Cody Liska and Dustin H. James for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats.